Hey everybody, Jake from Umbrella IT Services here, and today we're going to be speaking with Mark Stoiber from Brand DIY. Mark is an absolute marketing wizard. He's been recognized by almost every international award for design and advertising. He's written for Huffington Post. He's spoken at TEDx, and today he's going to be dropping a ton of information for us about branding, marketing, and a lot of other fun information. So without any further ado, let's jump into it. I'd like to give Mark a big thank you for coming on today and talking with us about uh, branding, his experience in the industry, and a number of other topics. So, Mark, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into the field of marketing and branding, and what experience do you have in the field? Oh, man. Uh, well, that takes us back to before electricity. Uh, <laughs> that's how long I've been around. Um, I, um, I was an immigrant kid, mm. and so I had two options, which was either work at my dad's TV store selling TVs, or become a lawyer. Mm. And I spent a lot of time working for my dad. So uh, I decided I should be a lawyer because I couldn't work for my dad. And um, so I, I, I got as far as getting into law school and then I discovered I wasn't cut out for law. And then I got lucky and got some scholarships to go study in Europe. And by hook and by crook landed at a company called Longines, which is a watch company. Mm. And as part of my work with them, I drifted into the graphic design department and I discovered that people are actually making a living taking pictures and writing words to sell watches. And that to me was a revelation. I had no idea advertising even existed. Fast forward, the folks at Long Jeans, or at this point, Swiss Timing, their timing division, they invited me to go work at the Olympics in Korea. And after the Olympics, I'd heard about Hong Kong being a place where you could go if you were young, dynamic, and utterly unemployable. Mm. <laughs> Pretty much behind me. And so I went to Hong Kong with a shabby little portfolio of photocopies of pictures and words selling all kinds of stuff. And I fell into a great job working for a great creative director from the UK. Everybody in Hong Kong is from somewhere else. And uh, so I had a wonderful uh, apprenticeship into becoming a writer. And that's when I fell in love with advertising. I just love the craft of it. And I love the design. And I love also the fact that you can be not very good at something like design or photography or music, but you get to work with professional directors and musicians and designers and say, yeah, a little more to the left, a little more to the right. And it's a wonderful thing bringing these things to life, this commercial art. And um, it's funny because I've lived through a lot of evolutions. I worked on a couple of different continents, worked at a lot of big ad agencies. I, I rose to my level of incompetence, the Peter Principle, uh, and became national creative director of a big ad agency. And uh, then I sort of stepped back and I said, you know, the thing is, after you've won all the awards and made all the money, which I kind of had, you realize that there's nothing there because what you're doing essentially is selling whatever somebody gives you for money mm. and there's not a whole lot of personal values or passion in that if you've already won the awards and made the money because that was kind of what we were there for winning awards and uh so i pulled out and i started a green ad agency i moved my family i i was at that time posted in toronto and i moved my family back to vancouver and i started a green ad agency because i thought um you know as somebody working in advertising um, the better I do my job, the quicker I kill my kids because uh, <laughs> advertising is all about promoting hyperconsumption. Mm. And if you're really good at it, you get people to consume a whole lot of stuff they don't need. So great, great story there. 
uh, one of my last hurrahs in big advertising was um, resuscitating and rescuing Mr. Clean. Mm. And everybody knows, but nobody was buying. They were about to sell the brand. It was defunct. And I remember the very first project we got, they introduced four new scents, flavors of Mr. Clean. Yeah. So spring, summer, winter, fall. And we go, why would you do that? The orange and lemon is just perfectly fine. And they said, well, you wouldn't want to be cleaning with a summer Mr. Clean if it's September. And you wouldn't want to be cleaning with a winter Mr. Clean if it's, if it's April. So essentially what they were doing was encouraging people to get Mr. Clean and throw the stuff out so they could get the new scent. And you just go, that's wrong on so many levels, but you just keep doing it. It starts to show up in your personal life, you know, as you, you know, you have, you have too many drinks on a Friday night and stuff like that, because you realize that what you're doing for a living is pretty crappy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that also set the course for where I am today, which is, I like to work a lot with entrepreneurs and founders and startups and the people that tend to find me are in sustainability, uh, they're in tech, and they're in healthcare. And there's a different reason for each of them because what my specialty is, is, is taking complex things and making them simple and attractive. And when you work in sustainability, uh, I ran my own green agency for a while and I, I, I love working with folks in sustainability because they're hopeless. And <laughs> the thing is, when you work in sustainability, you've seen this so many times, they know they're right yeah uh, that the environment is dying and that we're all you know we're all going to hell but what they don't realize is that being right isn't enough because if you have a powerful lobbyist for the wrong side they'll pound you and healthcare completely different reason i'm also a big believer in you know health and vitality versus just getting people hooked on drugs i've worked on a whole bunch of natural health clients and the problem with healthcare is that doctors have been raised that uh, to believe that patients have to listen to them because mm -hmm. they're the so in marketing nobody has to listen to you and they can't get over that yeah and finally in tech the third sector that seems to come all the time to me you have people who just can't speak like humans uh and so they have really yeah, they can't, they can't explain their way out of a wet paper bag. So healthcare, sustainability, and tech. I especially love tech because I love shiny new things. Mm -hmm. Those are the folks that come to me with their challenges. And all I do is help make them, <laughs> give them something simpler and more compelling to say. Yeah. I really like that you called uh, what you do commercial art. Um, yeah. I, I've never heard uh, marketing and branding called that before. That's all um. it is. <laughs> I mean, because anybody who is uh, still under the mistaken impression that what they're creating is art mm -hmm. should go back to the forest and to their potter's wheel because it's not art. Yeah. What it is, it's it's just figuring out how to. It's it's a hundred percent psychology. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Figuring out how to how to hold people's attention until you sell them something. How, That's how all do, it is. How do you sell them the excess fat on this pig, and then then you get the bacon and egg breakfast. Bingo, except yeah. that on pigs. I'll write that down. <laughs> um, so you, you, you unpacked a lot there. So how, how would you recommend that somebody who's a, in a startup position like myself um, or other sm or small local business owners, how can we avoid uh, going from our, we, we've got a purpose, we're solving legitimate issues, um, we know that we're right, like you said. How do we avoid transforming 
into these corporate sterilized behemoths as we grow. So let's say my business goes from five to 10 employees to 50 to 100 employees. Um, have you noticed that it's consistent for these larger businesses to become sterilized and to become uh, these, these monoliths that are just shipping and shilling products to, to consumers without caring what they're doing anymore? Interesting question. That's a really good one. Um, no, because there is an X factor and that is digital and social. And what is wonderful about the time we live in, even though it forces guys like me to constantly relearn and question everything that they've done before. Remember, I came up in an environment that was essentially print radio television. And so you got really good at limited things and you got, you got to hone your craft and then boom, the internet happened yeah. and then boom, social happened and then boom, emerging happened. And every time you got to a point where you go, Oh, I'm starting to get this, it would knock you back on your butt. However, that's not the point. The point is what's wonderful about digital is that it has suddenly become more about the company that is creating the product than the product itself. Mm. And uh, what, we're, what we've seen is a sort of an upending of the traditional product launch where it used to be that it was real easy to think of a product because there weren't that many around, relatively speaking. It was really hard to make a product because nothing was in place to make it. So getting even a CAD drawing, getting a model made, millions of dollars. That's why Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Henkel and all those big companies existed because it was so hard for a little company to launch a product. And third, it was extremely easy to market a product because there were so few channels. Now today, what's beautiful is it's really hard to come up with an original idea, mm -hmm. but it's really easy to bring a new product to the market. And it's also hard to market a product because there are so many channels, but more important, it has become a ping pong match. It used to be a megaphone where I'd yell at you to buy stuff and you just did. Mm -hmm. Now you're going, yeah, but what about that sweatshop? Yeah, but what about what you do with animals? Yeah, but what about, what about? And if I don't have an answer for you, you're gonna kill me. now. Mm. I would say probably the best example of a company that is started in the old paradigm, but had the right values uh, and has seen uh, has seen incredible growth and incredible success is Patagonia, mm. Patagonia clothing. If you go to their website, you'll see it's all about the back and forth. It's all about activism. It's all about what you believe in. Oh, and by the way, we make clothes. Yeah, that is super cool and entirely different from the world I grew up in, which was a whole bunch of men in gray flannel suits, mm -hmm. invisible, faceless, selling toxic stuff and telling you to throw the rest down the toilet when it got halfway done. So as a startup, I'd say there's a lot less danger today of falling into the big nasty corporate trap because the world is keeping you honest. The more successful you are, the more they're going to focus on keeping you honest. That makes sense. So, so the secret would just be stick to what, stick to your values, uh, focus on what gets you out of bed in the morning, um, and don't worry about the money. Don't worry. Don't worry about the commoditization of what you're doing. Um, well, the, the, yeah. I, I mean, you're you're looking at companies now like Warby Parker. They make they make good stuff. Mm -hmm. Harry's Razor. They make good stuff. Do they make great stuff? No, but. There, there is a fundamental sort of underlying philosophy of the company. And, you know, if they, if they, if they don't buy it, if they, if they don't actually do this, they're going to get busted real quick. But there's a philosophy 
in the company that people are buying. It, it goes back to Simon Sinek and, and uh, why do you exist mm. as opposed to what do you make? You know, Steve Jobs, I want to be cool. I want to be groovy. I love Steve <laughs> Jobs. I don't know what his personality was like, but all I know is that he was a groovy dude and he liked typography and purple computers. I would buy a frying pan from him. I don't yeah. care. Yeah, I, I, I'm obviously, uh, I know a lot about Steve Jobs. I'm a big fan of his. I know that he was a bit of a sociopath, but I don't think you can change the world the way he did without being a little bit of a monster. Um, mm -hmm. But the most impactful thing that I think he did, he did so much stuff, but um, one of the most impactful things I think he did was creating that iMac uh, back in the early 2000s with all the different colors. Um, but what he did with that series specifically, which has always kind of stuck with me, is he put a handle on it so that people would understand they could touch it. And he put all these curves on it and all of these different colors. And it was a very, like you said, groovy kind of situation. And it turned the computing world from it turned the computing world personal um, is what it did. It showed regular consumers that a, con a computer is something you can touch. It's something you can pick up. It's something you can interact with. And. It's the same principle for every time you walk into an Apple store. Um, they purposely set the MacBook displays up, I believe, at 35 or 37 degrees. So you have to push them back uh, so you can look at them a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. They want you to touch them. They want you to go in and, and feel the, the devices. And like you said, it all comes down to the psychology of selling. And, and I, th I think it's really important that you said uh, it's why do you exist, not what are you selling me. I I'm thinking Never. of... There's an, you know, we're going off. I'm going to go off topic here a little That's bit, okay. but you know, um, it, I also believe it, when you said, you know, how am I going to avoid uh, becoming an asshole if I grow too big? <laughs> yeah. Nice problem to have. Most entrepreneurs don't have that problem. They mm. have the problem of how am I going to stay in business? And what I think is interesting today, especially today, way more today, is that there is uh, unbounded opportunities to evolve and innovate in ways that are a bit zig when everybody else zags. I want to take razors for, for an example. Now, yeah. great case study about Gillette. You know, they came up with the original Mach 3 razor, three blades better than two, two blades better than one, one blade better than the, the old razor. Um, and so they got this big faceless company said, we are going to chase this down the rabbit hole because that's what big companies do. They get good at inventing one thing mm -hmm. and then protecting their turf. Mm. which is suicide today because yep. it's so easy to invent new stuff. Yep. So they go then from the three-bladed razor to the five-bladed razor with a swiveling head and vibration and a menthol strip because, well, you know, because. Anyway, they innovate the crap out of this old model, and then Harry's and Dollar Shave Club comes along and go, people don't give a rat about how many blades, and we don't. You get to a certain number of blades and you don't care. Yeah. And then what they care about is going to the store and paying $20 for a little stack of razor blade recharges, yeah. knowing that 19 of that goes to Roger Federer um, or whoever their spokesmodel is. And so they changed the way of getting razors to people and boom, blew the market apart. Mm -hmm. It's the horseless carriage, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I love for entrepreneurs uh, who are innovating, who are thinking of a, something to keep it simple, be careful about jumping on the incremental innovation bandwagon and take a look. If it's not the product, it could be the process. If it's not the process, it could be the service. There's so many things to look at. And with digital, the thing that scares me and thrills me 
is that everything can come back to you and you can test everything and you can try stuff and your head will explode with so many new ways of marketing. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the ways that you measure successful marketing? So let's say that I've got a radical new idea or I've got a great idea. I've noticed my clients are loving it. Uh, my, my AB testing is going super well and, and I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. Um, how do I strap rockets onto that and how do I measure the success and make sure that what I'm doing is on the right path? Well, that's an awesome question. And I'm going to get back to something that uh, Jesus taught me, okay. you know, when, because that's how far back this goes. Yeah. Uh, this is the oldest trick in the entire book. Mm. And actually, I, I'm just launching a course uh, with this. I'm in beta testing right now with it. But it's all about research. And it's not about product research. It's not about technological research. It's about finding out what people want. And this in our day and age of digital interconnectivity people ironically are having a harder and harder time just sitting across from each other going so what do you like what do you hate because we're raising a generation of social morons who are have the <laughs> headphones on and uh text yeah and having a personal conversation with someone is getting really hard for them yeah. but it's imperative and what you do you call up your customer who loves your stuff mm -hmm. and you say, so how come you love my stuff? What do you love about my stuff? What do you hate about my stuff? What do you wish I did better? What am I killing it on? And you ask them these questions. And what you're going to find is that if you talk to a few of them, and I'm not talk talking about talking to everyone, I'm talking about 15 to 20 people who love your stuff. You talk to them, and oh, by the way, you don't send them an online poll because that's cheating. That goes right back to the headphones and texting. Yeah. You don't get real answers. You sit and have a coffee and look at the whites of their eyes yep. because body language tells you everything. And you can hit them with the why, 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 you know? Um, so you ask them that, and what you're going to see is a pattern emerge that everybody seems to really love this and really hate that and really wish you were doing this thing. And you're going to see a certain type of person, you know, you call them avatars, you call them personas, whatever you want to call them. Uh, a certain type of person, a smaller subsegment of your audience tends to buy 80% of your stuff. Mm, yep. And I take that and I go, all right, who is that person? I define him or her so I can actually see them. What do they do on a Sunday? What do they like to drink? Bah, 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 bah. Yep. Then I replicate them. And I mirror them and I appeal to other people like that person saying the stuff that drew that one person to my product in the first place. That's the beauty of digital. That makes a lot of sense. So when you're deriving that person and you're finding these avatars or these archetypes, um, is it best to go with the, the lowest common denominator? Like for myself, for example, we work for so many different types of people and i know people that are selling products are selling products to so many different types of people is it better to just go for the lowest common denominator that you can find so for example middle-aged men uh, professional services um or executives or presidents etc or do you want to find things like okay 20 percent of these guys are playing golf 15 percent of them love nascar small percentage of them like fishing um there's a there's the other side of the coin which is the ladies and they have their interests etc um how do you usually end up breaking down the demographic of these archetypes i i'm a i'm a simple guy mm. and so i always go for the simplest answer yeah and the first question is uh, who gave you money twice? <laughs> yeah. Anybody can give you money once, yeah. but whoever gave you money twice, 
there's already a sub-segment. And that takes 80% of them out of the equation. Yeah. Unless you've got a product they only have to buy once. But, you know, assuming you've got a product that they want to subscribe to mm -hmm. or they want to buy multiple times or they want to buy the add-ons or something, when they buy twice or multiple times, they are buying into something. Makes sense. As opposed to just buying a solution. And that becomes a, a smaller slice of the pie already. Then you want to look at degrees of difficulty. How hard is it to reach um, a, a sort of person who lives in isolation? I'm just going to pull this out of my ear. But uh, somebody who lives in isolation a million miles from nowhere, probably a lot harder than it is to reach somebody who loves to live in a city, mm. you know, where I, can, where I can put out one ad and reach all of them. Although with digital, all bets are off, right? Yeah. We're all in the same city. Um, so I always look at degrees of difficulty. I go, who buys the stuff lots? Because they're obviously buying into more than just a product. Yep. And then how can I start to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow until I get a very, very tight niche? Now, you're saying, why would you want to narrow? In actual fact, what I want to do, I want to spread that pie. I want, to, I want everybody to buy my stuff. Well, good luck. Because what you're doing then is infringing on the turf of a bunch of your competitors. And they all offer stuff and it gets confusing. Nobody understands what you're standing for, what they're standing for. It becomes a mushy mess. Yeah. A good brand goes narrow, 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 knowing that even if they go brutally narrow in their targeting, there's still plenty of food, plenty of money, plenty of product to sell. So that is the first counterintuitive thing that entrepreneurs have to know. You want to go narrow, but start with the question, who gave you money twice? Yeah, that's awesome. I was, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually my next question for you was as someone with limited resources, as a lot of local or smaller businesses are, um, I also very strongly believe in what you just said about finding your niche, hammering it and going down as small as you can go with it. If I can find engineers that work specifically on hydroelectric systems and their names are Steve, you know what I mean? Like I want to go as narrow as I can possibly go when I'm trying to find my clients. Is it strategic or is it uh, wasteful for a business with limited resources to find multiple niches that they're able to serve just as efficiently and just as well? For example, let's say you're a watch manufacturer as you or a razor manufacturer, as you mentioned. Um, and they're able to find, let's say that Harry's were to start targeting um, college football teams. You know what I mean? Would it be effective for them at the same time to be running a second or third campaign targeting uh, female volleyball teams or going after uh, these kind of things? You know what I mean? Going after different niches at the same time. Or is it more effective to just find one, hammer it, master it, and then when the time is right, add on a secondary service the way Apple did by transitioning from the iPod to the iPhone so you don't become that dinosaur that you're talking about and stuck in that innovation loop in that one product or service niche? Well, because I have, I have a limited brain, mm -hmm. I can only think of so many things at the same time. So going after multiple uh, targets, mm -hmm. uh, if you ask anybody at a big package goods company, they'll go, no, that's suicide, man. Mm. That is nuts. And they've got a billion dollars and yeah. they don't do it. However, Guys in college, Harry's Razors, girls in college, Harry's Razors. You go, they're completely different people, right? Mm -hmm. Wrong. Oftentimes, <laughs> the niche isn't defined by sex, age, marital status, employment. It's not defined by that. Mm. 
if you go down a few levels, it can be very much defined by their worldview, mm. what their priorities in life are, mm. uh, what their perspective on corporations is, or yeah. you know, a psychological thing. Yeah. So a niche could be anyone who doesn't want to pay a stupid model $19 of the $20 of a new pack of razors. Yeah. Boy, girl, dog, I don't care. Yeah. If they hate giving their money to Roger Federer or Kim Kardashian, they're in. Could be a boy or a girl, could be young or old. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think my issue there is that I actually fell into the trap of what am I selling, not why am I selling it or who am I mm -hmm. helping? Uh, because again, looking at those, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, what resources uh, do you usually recommend to people wanting to learn more about this stuff or if they're starting their first campaigns or they're already an established business running campaigns? Uh, what resources do you recommend for uh, the local? Well, I, I, I recommend a bunch of stuff. First yep. off, um, hold on. Uh, <laughs> there are, these are, this, this one is so old, uh, you know, it's got rust on it. Yeah. But this is a classic book. It's called Positioning. And it was written back in the 80s, and I just reread it again, and it's every bit as relevant as it was back then. And what most people don't realize is that the act of marketing has very little to do with drawing pretty pictures or writing fun words. That's like putting the paint on the house. The sanding, this is the sanding, figuring out where you should position your product so that you can beat your competitors or avoid your competitors and talk to a lucrative group of people who really want what you got. Mm. That's one. This is another one. This one is one of the few uh, business books that I, I go back to again and again and again, and it's hard to find. It's called Why Johnny Can't Brand. Mm. And for any entrepreneur who wants to embark on building their brand or toning up their brand, this is a killer read buy it in paperback from amazon because you're going to want to skip around so don't get a kindle version mm. and uh, the third thing that i would recommend if you want to skip ahead and go straight to a live interactive sort of forum i started a group on facebook called brand diy and if folks go to my um, my website which is mark stoiber m-a-r-c S-T-O-I-B-E-R.com, they will find in the resources section a book called Brand DIY. And it walks you through five steps in building your own brand. And it's important, I'm not saying that building your own brand is cool because it's cheap, but it's important to an entrepreneur who wants to have control and understanding of a brand, which a lot of the time has been positioned as this mythical thing that only these guys in black turtlenecks can understand. Mm -hmm. I want to demystify this because it is actually a relatively simple process. It goes right back to the research question. Who gave you money? Twice. Yeah. Boom. Everybody understands that. It is that simple. So check out Brand DIY, the book, and then um, go to Facebook and you can actually type in, I bought the URL, Brand DIY Group. Dot com and that'll take you to the group every day there is brand tips every day there's a live stream we just had a live stream with a candidate for the green party and how he's reworking his brand based on being an entrepreneur so you know there's daily bits that people can learn from it's it's lively and what i like to focus on is the fundamentals mm. um, not the technology because 
that you can shave a monkey and put them behind a computer and they can do the technology for you yeah in marketing uh there's a reason that omnicom had the second uh, had the worst second quarter in forever they own all the ad agencies it's because the technology evolved in marketing is commoditized and democratized yeah. you can do it yourself but you'll do a bad job of it if you don't do the fundamentals the that, sanding of the house that makes a lot of sense we recently had um Michelle Sorgaroli on to talk about brand differentiation and and she really drilled home how important it is for people the way you just mentioned to understand what you're doing what makes you different how to leverage your individuality and if you're just going out there saying I'm different okay what makes you different oh well we're really good at customer service and we're the fastest and we're the best and it's everyone is saying that but mm -hmm. if, if you're getting out of bed her example I believe was a financial advisor um, who was very much into meditation and he ended up rebuilding his company in that image uh, and using uh, meditation and these kind of values and principles. And his company ended up rapidly expanding. All of his clients were much happier. He was much more centered and relaxed. His staff had been happier and more fulfilled. And it was very interesting to hear her talk about that stuff. And I really like that you're having a lot of overlap with that. Um, because like you said, you got you to gotta build the foundation of the house. You got to sand the house. Then you can mm -hmm. paint it. Then you can do all of the sizzle on top of the steak. Um, so the problem is there's a fundamental problem. Uh, digital, I, I love digital. Mm. Uh, the problem with the digital world is that it has created an arms race for commoditizing all the tools of the marketing trade. So on Facebook, if I go on Facebook or LinkedIn, I can reach out to 5,000 very targeted people in my network mm. and sell them something. It used to be you couldn't do that. Yeah. However, with this commoditization, it has made it easier and easier and easier to put a message out. And just because you can put a message out doesn't mean you should put a message yeah. out. And that's what a lot of people miss. That reminds me a lot of, I've heard a couple of comedians talk about this, where back in the day, if you watched a TV show, you didn't like it, or you got into a fight with someone over the phone, you didn't like it, you would have to write a letter. You'd have to sit there for 15 minutes, write the whole thing out, reread it, get an envelope, put it in the envelope, get a postage yeah. stamp, walk down to the post office, send it off. And by that point, you filtered out all the crazies. Most people yeah. are done. Like they're like, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this. Not worth my time. I got things to do done. But nowadays you see something and it's, I don't like this. And it's instant. You can just put it out there and just spew whatever it is you want to spew. And we have this information overload kind of going on. So well, how do you yeah, I mean, and then a million people know you're a dickhead, right? Exactly. And that, that applies to marketing as well as to Twitter Twitter tantrums yeah. uh, or dick pics or whatever, you know, you want to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is, there are so many examples. If you want to look at uh, 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 Kenneth Cole, mm. Kenneth Cole did an absolute stinker when the Arab Spring happened. He wrote a tweet or put it on Facebook or something. It says, turns out they were just trying to get into our store to get into our spring sale. <laughs> <laughs> take the phone away from him. It's yeah. like Donald Trump. Take the it's phone exactly, away. Yeah. Just that you can put a message out to a million people yeah. doesn't mean you should. Yeah, 100%. So really quickly, because I know that you got to get running. Um, how do you recommend that uh, we, we always make sure that when we are putting things out to our audience that it is valuable? Um, how, do you, how do you recommend we kind of filter that uh, ourselves? Super easy. Mm. Super easy. Go back to the person who gave you money twice yep. and say, so what sucks about this thing that I'm trying to do to sell more stuff? Awesome. <laughs> nice and simple. I love it. And that's what 99% of us don't do because once we've created something, we have ownership. It's our baby. And going to one of our customers and saying, 
what sucks is saying, what's ugly about my baby? Mm. Who wants to hear that? Nobody. So, but it's crucial if you want to improve that you absolutely become a Zen master about parking your ego and that you say, I'm going to take the advice in the right way as a, as a, as a sort of a signal for improvement, as opposed to going, you don't like my baby. (laughs) That's the most important thing I would, I would recommend is going to people live, white to their eyes, asking them what sucks. Don't ask them what they love about what you're no worries. That sounds perfect. Um, all right, Mark. So I know that you got to get going, but we're going to have to have you on again because uh, I have a lot more questions for you, but we can continue this another day. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope this gave everybody a really good foundation and uh, things to start with with branding and those three books. I'm definitely going to be buying one or two of them that I can already tell you. And uh, yeah, do you have anything that you want to promote before we before we close? No, up here? I mean, all I would say to people is just go to my website, markstoiber.com. If you mm-hmm. can link it, that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'll uh, go to branddiy.com and it walks you right through to the Facebook group. Awesome. So yeah, everybody, make sure to check out those links to branddiy and markstoiber.com in the description. Uh, we'll throw anything else in there that Mark sends us after the show. And again, thank you so much for coming on, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you. Have a great day. Bye now. And I think that does it for today's video. If you could please leave a like on this video, it really helps us out. If you want to see more videos like this, then please hit subscribe. If you have a suggestion for a future video or a guest you'd like to see on the show, please leave a comment down below or email us at techtips at umbrellaitservices.ca. Have a great day and see you all soon.